Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you'll hear the opening chapter of Glenn Sunshine's Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. If you're interested in hearing the rest of the book on audio, you can find that exclusively on the Canon app. If you'd like to read the rest, of course, you can find it at canonpress.com. Introduction The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance, which condition, if he break, servitude is at once the consequence of his crime and the punishment of his guilt. John Philpot Curran, 1750-1817 In 1789, a revolution broke out in France. Rejecting the past, especially Christianity, the revolutionaries built their program on autonomous human reason and enlightenment ideals, with the result that in the name of liberty, equality, and brotherhood, the leaders of the revolution slaughtered over 100,000 of their own people. What went wrong? No matter how much the revolutionary government trumpeted its support of liberty, Like any good propagandists, they redefined the term. Following Rousseau, they claimed that true freedom was found in submitting to the general will, which, of course, they alone understood and embodied. And if you did not agree, if you insisted on your own faith or defended your right to property or were found wanting in revolutionary fervor, your existence threatened the promised utopia and you had to be eliminated. This is what happens in crisis situations when the government claims the right to control all areas of life. You end up with a totalitarian nightmare, a monster that reaches into everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, that claims authority over everything we own and lets us live only in line with its values and interests. What you get is Leviathan. We are able to put a name on this monstrous form of government thanks to Thomas Hobbes. In 1651, he published a book on political theory called Leviathan, in which he argued that the king had absolute authority in the kingdom. This meant that, by definition, a king could not violate laws or deprive people of their rights because all authority had been ceded to him by the people. Although Hobbes had some unique arguments in the book, his basic idea was not new. The spirit of Leviathan had shaped many cultures in the ancient world, most notably the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord, the de facto creed of the empire, implied that Caesar had supreme authority over civic life because he was the embodiment of the state. Nothing was beyond Leviathan's grasp. This included religion. To pledge allegiance to the state, A Roman burned incense to the statue of the emperor as an act of worship. Even when there was a dispute within temples and priesthoods, the emperor intervened as mediator to resolve it. This was not the world as God created it to be governed. In Eden, Adam and Eve were free to enjoy the beauty of the garden, to develop its resources under God's authority, to act with creativity and liberty, and to enjoy the fruits of their labors. Sin ruined all of this, and from the time of Babel through the present, governments have sought unlimited power over the bodies, minds, and hearts of their subjects. Jesus was born into such a world. In the first century and afterward, 
The Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, e.g. Romans 10.9, was a direct challenge to Caesar's authority. As worshippers of one God, Christians could not participate in burning incense to the emperor or treating him in any sense as divine. The result was centuries of sporadic persecution for the church. But something remarkable happened. Even though Christians were an unpopular, persecuted minority, Christianity continued to spread such that in AD 313, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, declaring religious liberty in the empire and thus decriminalizing Christianity. The church had existed for 300 years without state support, surviving and thriving even with the murderous opposition of the Caesars. In the end, this dealt Leviathan a mortal wound, demonstrating that the church was separate from and independent of the state. A king's reach was limited, extending only to the things that were Caesar's, not to the church or to the things that were God's. But what, precisely, does belong to Caesar? To answer this question, Christian thinkers throughout the millennia have focused on a wide range of issues, most of which were intended to address specific legal, political, or religious questions current to the particular time each was writing. Slaying Leviathan surveys some of the key elements of Christian political thought, specifically those that were ultimately synthesized into a coherent political philosophy by John Locke, who was himself arguing against the spirit of Leviathan in his day. Locke is rightly viewed as an Enlightenment thinker, but the central elements of his political philosophy were adapted from the Christian tradition, and Locke, of course, influenced the American founders, who represent the culmination of the Christian political philosophy surveyed in this book. The American founders intended to put an end to Leviathan by adopting a system based on principles of unalienable rights and limited government. But unfortunately, like the beast rising from the sea in the apocalypse, Leviathan's mortal wound was healed. Revelation 13.3 Through the decisions of the philosopher kings of the U.S. Supreme Court, the abdication of legislative responsibilities by Congress to the executive branch, and the expansion of the regulatory state, the reach of government has never been larger in American history than it is now. Leviathan's tentacles have wriggled their way into all areas of life, even regulating the conditions under which churches can meet and what they can do in worship. The government we have now would have been unrecognizable to the founders, and our acquiescence to its systematic encroachments on liberty would have infuriated them. But here is the point. It would not surprise them. They were well acquainted with the tendency of governments to turn tyrannical. A popular quote in the 19th century frequently attributed to Jefferson says, Eternal vigilance is the price we pay for liberty. If we are to maintain our liberty, we must constantly be on guard against the rise of Leviathan. We must play whack-a-mole with it whenever it rears its head. Our cultural complacency in this area has allowed Leviathan to be reborn, leading to the politicization of every area of society as everything becomes subject to the regulatory state. As a church historian, I decided I needed to address this problem because of the actions of an administration that worked to undermine religious liberty, and with it a host of other liberties. I began studying the development of Christian political theology, 
and I discovered there the sources of our ideas about limited government, unalienable rights, liberty, and resistance to tyranny, as well as resources to help us think through how we are to respond to today's challenges. Examining the long Christian tradition of resisting the totalizing tendencies of government proves to be very relevant to us in view of the deterioration of our liberty. Revisiting our Christian tradition is also the first step we must take as we consider what to do about Leviathan rising. In each of the following chapters, I summarize the development of a different aspect of the Christian political tradition that contributed to the thinking of the American founders and discuss some of the implications of those ideas for today. Through it all, you will learn the story of Christianity's battle against Leviathan, a battle waged in the name of the liberty God granted all humanity in the Garden of Eden. Chapter 1. The Early Church If you wish to defend religion by bloodshed and by tortures and by guilt, it will no longer be defended, but will be polluted and profaned. For nothing is so much a matter of free will as religion, in which, if the mind of the worshipper is disinclined to it, Religion is at once taken away and ceases to exist. Lactantius, 250-320 The First Three Hundred Years From its earliest days, Christianity has had a complex relationship with the state. Jesus was clear that his kingdom is not of this world, John 18.36, and, therefore, that his work was not about political power. He also taught that we are to give to Caesar, i.e., the government, the things that are Caesar's, which means that Caesar really does have legitimate claims on us. Matthew 22, 21, Mark 12, 17, Luke 20, 25. At the same time, however, that claim is not all-encompassing. We are to give to God, not to Caesar, the things that belong to God. The government may not take on authority that properly belongs to God or, by extension, to the church. What things are properly outside the scope of government became the subject of much political and theological reflection over the centuries. In its most basic form, the question of what properly belonged to God and not to Caesar arose within a few decades of Jesus' death and resurrection. As touched on in the introduction, one of the earliest Christian confessions was, Jesus is Lord. Most people today do not understand how significant and radical that statement was in the context of the Roman Empire. The de facto imperial confession was, Caesar is Lord. That is, Caesar is sovereign in this world and has authority over just about every aspect of life. The title Lord even implied a kind of divinity for Caesar. Confessing Jesus is Lord implying that Caesar is not, therefore had unmistakable political overtones that could not help but sound treasonous to Roman ears. The status of the Christian confession was further complicated by another aspect of Roman culture. In Rome, deities were the supreme authorities in particular spheres of life or of the world. Thus, for example, Neptune was sovereign over the seas, and when you went out on them, you needed to acknowledge Neptune's authority by performing a sacrifice to him. Otherwise, you were risking his wrath. In the political world, the supreme authority was the emperor. This meant that he was periodically viewed as a god, 
and in all cases, his authority was recognized by performing some form of religious ritual, such as burning incense to his statue. Jews had special rites that exempted them from this, but Christians did not, particularly when the church was increasingly made up of Gentile converts. For Romans, burning incense to the statue of the emperor had little more significance than saying the Pledge of Allegiance today. But to Christians, it was idolatry, giving to Caesar the things that are God's. So although they did their best to live quiet and peaceable lives following Paul's exhortation, 1 Timothy 2.2, they adamantly refused to participate in worship of pagan gods or of the emperor. To put this in different terms, Jesus' own teaching led the church to the idea that government has its place, but that its authority is limited. Combined with the confession of Jesus' lordship, this was a recipe for persecution in the power-obsessed world of ancient Rome. Sporadic persecution began under Nero, Regnat A.D. 54-68, and continuing for centuries. For their disloyalty to the emperor, for their refusal to worship pagan gods, which made them atheists in the eyes of the Romans, for their intolerant and bigoted belief that Jesus is the only hope of salvation, for their willingness to accept women and slaves as equal members of their community and even as leaders, and for a range of other practices that distinguished believers from their neighbors, Christians were held in contempt by the people of Rome. They were slandered, their beliefs were caricatured, their property was confiscated, and they watched as their friends, spouses, and children were tortured to death for the amusement of cheering crowds before they were martyred themselves. But because of their faithfulness, the church ended up spreading and outlasting the mighty Roman Empire itself. Tertullian's dictum, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, is true. As the Romans watched Christians go to gruesome, horrible deaths willingly and even singing hymns, they developed a grudging admiration for their courage and commitment, and inevitably began to ask themselves why anyone would go through that when all they had to do was burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. Christian faithfulness stood in sharp contrast to the faith of most Romans, who recognized that they did not have anything they would be willing to die that way for. And so, people were increasingly attracted to the church by the faithfulness of the martyrs. The persecution of the church would lay the foundation for one of the core principles of Christian political theology. The church is a distinct institution from the state. Unlike other cultures of the ancient world, including Old Testament Israel, religion and government in Christianity are separate institutions with different spheres of authority and with distinct responsibilities. Both are ordained by God for His purposes in the world and in the best case can cooperate and work together toward the common goal of producing a just and peaceful society. But this is neither necessary nor inevitable. The church can perform its work even in the face of murderous hostility from the government, and thus the two cannot properly ever be united into a single entity. Until Christ returns, theocracy is off the table. The Church in the Christian Roman Empire The Church's situation changed radically when the Emperor Constantine converted and issued the Edict of Milan in AD 313. 
Constantine had long exposure to Christianity, and even as a pagan had looked on it favorably. For example, he appointed Lactantius, a Berber Christian convert, as his son's tutor in 309. Lactantius wrote a work entitled The Divine Institutes, in which, like other early Christian writers, he made an argument for religious liberty on the grounds that worship of God was only acceptable if it was offered freely. In 312, Constantine was fighting Maxentius, a rival for the title of emperor, and is reported to have seen a vision of a cross with the words, In this sign, conquer. He had his soldiers paint a cross on their shields and then defeated Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. As a result, he converted to Christianity, though there is some dispute on whether his conversion was genuine, and the following year he issued the Edict of Milan. Using wording and reasoning taken from Lactantius' divine institutes, this edict established religious liberty in Rome, effectively making Christianity legal and ending religious persecution. People often argue that Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire, thereby undermining the distinction between church and state. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of both Constantine and the Edict of Milan. Although Constantine legalized Christianity, he did not make it Rome's state religion. That would only occur later, with the Edict of Thessalonica, issued by Theodosius I in AD 380. And even after Constantine's edict, pagans continued to be allowed to worship within the empire. Far from making Christianity the state religion, what the Edict of Milan did was to legalize all religions, not just Christianity. Further, as we have seen, the church had grown and expanded without government recognition for nearly three centuries. In fact, Christianity is the only major world religion to begin and spread without government support. Constantine's actions would not and could not change the precedent that had been set that church and government are separate institutions, and that the church can exist and function even in the face of government opposition. The State and Conflicts in the Church In the Roman Empire, when a conflict arose within a religion, the emperor was responsible to act as a mediator to resolve the conflict. Thus, when a dispute rose in the church over whether Jesus was God incarnate, as taught by Athanasius, or the first and highest created being, as taught by Arius, Constantine did what emperors were supposed to do. He called a church council to settle the issue. The council was held in the city of Nicaea, now in modern Turkey, in AD 325. Although Constantine attended the council, the decision was made by the bishops without his interference. In other words, he provided a forum to solve the problem without dictating what the solution should be. Constantine had a very different response to the Donatists. These were Christians who believed that priests who had acted faithlessly under persecution were never legitimate priests to begin with and thus that all the sacraments that they had ever performed were invalid. This meant, for example, that anyone who had been baptized by a priest who later apostatized had to be re-baptized. In a dispute that we will examine in more detail in chapter 2, a church council decided against the Donatist position, and in response, the Donatists rioted. Constantine cracked down on them violently 
No ruler can tolerate rioting, because it quickly turns into rebellion, so Constantine responded to them as he would to any other rioters. Augustine of Hippo, whose theology has shaped Christianity in the West more than that of any other thinker, would later support Constantine's reaction and the suppression of Donatism by state power. Augustine used Jesus' words, cogite entrare, compel them to enter, Luke 14.23, to argue that the state had the right and responsibility to coerce heretics, though not pagans, to rejoin the church. While this followed the ancient pattern of the state overseeing religious practice, it was inconsistent with the broader perspective that the church exists independent of the state. Further, it violated the principle of religious liberty promoted by Lactantius and other earlier Christian writers. As we will see in the next chapter, Augustine articulated some critically important ideas that would shape political theology in powerful ways for many centuries. But in this respect, he departed from the Christian tradition and helped set up the long centuries of cooperation between church and state in the coercion and persecution of religious dissenters. On the other hand, the interaction between church and state was a two-way street in which church leaders called out even emperors when they acted immorally. The classic example is Ambrose of Milan, Augustine's mentor, who forced Emperor Theodosius I to perform public penance for ordering the massacre of people in Thessalonica after the murder of one of his officials there. To put it differently, emperors may have gotten involved in issues in the church, but church leaders also called emperors and government officials to task for the conduct of political affairs. The dynamics of this relationship would continue to be played out in many ways over the centuries to today, when, for example, Catholic priests have excluded politicians from Holy Communion for their support of abortion. Implications If asked how the Christian should relate to the government, early believers would tell you that their first and primary loyalty must always be to King Jesus. They obey the laws of the state insofar as they do not conflict with the laws of their king, but they would rather die than be disloyal to their true sovereign and lord even by simply attending quasi-religious events and festivities that contradicted their faith. The state has legitimate, God-given authority, but not ahead of Christ or over a Christian's conscience. This was a groundbreaking idea. Up to the Edict of Milan, governments were essentially totalitarian. They claimed authority over every area of life, even supervising religious belief and practice, and determining which religions would be accepted and which not. The decriminalization of Christianity after centuries of persecution meant that there was at least one public institution, the church, that was not directly under the authority of the state. This immediately leads to the question of how church and state are to relate to each other. Where does the authority of one end and the other begin? Much of the political history of the Western world is connected to the tug of war to determine the proper boundaries in the relationship between religion and civil government. Sometimes the state gets the upper hand, and sometimes the church. But the dynamic caused by the tension between the two is a major element in the history of Western political thought. 
But the distinction between church and state carries another, more subtle implication. If the government's authority is limited with respect to the church, if the state does not rule over all of life, then there might be other spheres where the government also cannot legitimately trespass. The medieval world worked out the logic of this idea by developing a range of mediating institutions that stand between the individual and the state. These range from the natural institution of the family, which had been largely recognized by Rome, to guilds, confraternities and other charitable agencies, business consortia, schools, etc. These institutions are collectively known as civil society. The theory behind civil society, that government is not and should not be all-powerful, and that there are segments of society that should not be under direct government control, would eventually crystallize in the idea of sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty holds that society consists of a number of autonomous spheres that should properly regulate their own affairs. These include government, religion, family, education, business, labor, and others. Government in particular has a specific set of responsibilities related to defense against all enemies, foreign and domestic, the enforcement of laws, and seeing to it that the spheres neither overstep their bounds nor violate the law. Although each of these spheres should govern its own affairs, sometimes on a wide scale they do not. Family structure collapses. Schools fail to teach effectively. Businesses act unethically. Labor organizations become corrupt. When this happens, the temptation is for another sphere, almost inevitably the government, to step in to fix the problem rather than to work to revitalize the failing spheres. Unfortunately, government is ill-equipped to solve these problems. Its tools and its competence lie in its areas of responsibility, not in those of other spheres. As a result, its attempts to step in and regulate the workings of another sphere are likely to be clumsy at best, and often will make the problem worse. It is not alarmist to say, more ominously, that whenever a government oversteps its sphere in this way, it usurps power that properly belongs to another institution. This petty tyranny is, of course, the first sign of Leviathan rising. Christianity has other resources beside the distinction between church and state, civil society, and sphere sovereignty that act as a bulwark against the totalitarian impulses of government. One of the most important is the doctrine of original sin. And this brings us to Augustine of Hippo, the most important theologian in the Latin Christian tradition, and the first to highlight original sin and to explore its implications for society and politics. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ podcast. That was a clip from Glenn Sunshine's book, Slaying Leviathan. If you'd like to hear the rest on audio, remember you can get it exclusively on the Canon app, so download and subscribe. Or if you'd like to get your hands on it, head to canonpress.com.